Let me entertain you. Welcome to another episode of Let Me Entertain You, where I take you inside the minds of musical theatre. Mary Poppins' The Musical has opened in Sydney ahead of its Australian tour, and I went to Barrel, New South Wales. I wanted to find out more about the author P.L. Travers. Did you know over a hundred years ago she'd moved to the town following the death of her father? In fact, extensive research has shown that Barrel is the birthplace of the character of Mary Poppins and further stories. This is a fascinating podcast for any Mary Poppins fan and for the history buffs. I was thrilled to speak to Paul McShane. He and his daughter for years were researching and campaigning to have a very special statue erected in Barrel. So special that it turns twice a year so it faces the east wind. You will have to watch our videos and socials because we captured it it on film and it is definitely something that you can't miss. We're interrupted more than once by tiny little fans that wanted to climb the statue and get their photograph taken. We also visit the original home of P.L. Travers. This is truly a podcast not to be missed. Without further ado, from the Mary Poppins birthplace statue in Bowral, my guest, Paul McShane. One, two, three, four. Hello, Paul McShane. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, Elizabeth. So here I am in Barrel against this magnificent Mary Poppins statue. Tell me more about her. Oh, well, the statue commemorates the fact that when it was erected a hundred years before, the author of uh, Mary Poppins. Uh... <laughs> Maybe midweek might have been better to do this. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. But it's lovely to see us so popular with the kids. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Are, are you guys going to be long? Just so we know. We can, oh. we can pull him away. No, that's no, all right. Did you want to get your photograph in while we're setting up? Oh, they're just going to play. Like, he loves Mary Poppins. So. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Have you seen the statue before? No. Alright. You know she's magical. She actually can move. Can she move? Yeah, she moves. She turns around twice oh, a year. Sorry for No, it's all good. That's what she's here for. Doing the job. Yeah. Yeah, we have just gone to the Mary Poppins uh, musical inside. Oh, all right, right, yeah. Okay. yeah. Fabulous production. Great show. Yeah. Like, well, I'm sure we'll be back. Every time. 
Hello, Paul McShane. Hello, Elizabeth. <laughs> Here we are in Barrel, take two after the lovely family just saw out the. No, that wasn't set up. That was that was a real <laughs> deal. I mean, it's just it is actually it, it, it warms my my heart to see the reaction to the statue. It's it's all we could have dreamt of, um, and it's keeping the legacy of the Mary Poppins and the connection with the character and the author with this town alive. Um, in a very special way. So we are here, here in Bowro. Just, it's the part, tell us more about where the statue is and how important the statue is. Sure. So the statue is located in Glebe Park, which is right next to, to the Bradman Oval. Um, it's only a block from the house that the family, um, it was called the Goff family at the time. So it was a mother um, and uh, Helen Lyndon Goff, which was the author's true name, and her two younger sisters. And they only lived a block from here. And this Glebe Park was actually opened formally at the time they, they moved here in 1908. Um, so this is probably where they played. This, this would have been the, the main playground for them. Um, and so what our research uncovered was that while she was living here, um, Helen Lyndon Goff actually created this character, probably based on, on uh, the great art that she had. Um, and she created this character to tell uh, bedtime stories to her sisters. Um, and there's a famous story of when they thought perhaps their mother was going to, to, to commit suicide, she went out, she was grief-stricken, still from the death of her husband a few years earlier. Um, she went out into a violent storm and, uh, and P.L. Travers writes very movingly about um, gathering her sisters around the fireplace at this house in Holly Street. And, uh, and telling them the story of a magical white horse. And she said that that magical white horse was actually the character, Mary Poppins. But there's other evidence that, that her sisters have provided and elsewhere, and she herself has provided, that the character came into existence, the actual nanny character, came into existence while she was living here. Because a lot of people um, are getting to know P.L. Travers. Uh, so she was born in Marabra and then she came here after the death of her father? Yeah, look, I, I mean, she's a fascinating character and I'd recommend highly, uh, which is what we did, uh, to, to find a copy of Valerie Lawson's biography. It's come out, it's been reissued with a new title now as Mary Poppins, she wrote. Um, but uh, it was published in 1999 and we used that as a resource. We actually, Melissa, my daughter and I, who we jointly have worked on this project uh, for many years, uh, we interviewed Valerie. Uh, very early on and she encouraged us actually to go to the State Library and look at the primary sources which was terrific advice because we, we did that and we found out elements of the story that Valerie hadn't really covered, they, were, they weren't central to her, her biography narrative but for us they were really significant about her time here in Barrel. Um, so so that, was, um, that was the beginning of, of sort of discovery and uh, we just became, it became more apparent as we went along. The, the actual our interest in it, where we got involved, was I was um, I was involved in the book industry at the time, and I was um, organising book festivals and reading programs and other things, and I was awarded a Churchill Fellowship to travel around the world to look at book towns, and we were we were we proposed the Southern Highlands as Australia's first book town. So as part of that, my daughter Melissa and my wife Sue joined me for a large part of that trip in in Europe and, and England and Scotland. Um, Anyway, when we got back, you know, we found out about this Mary Poppins thing. Melissa said to me, look, all those places overseas we went to, they all had statues to the authors. And, you know, she was a bit flummoxed. She was only 10 years old at the time, but she'd worked out 
we're not really doing a good job here of, you know, we've got Mary Poppins. So um, it was then we sort of really started researching it and uh, going up to the State Library and they even gave Melissa a, a, a reader's card, which she was underage for, but, you know, they were quite bemused by this, this girl coming along with me. Um, and, yeah, the story sort of unfolded from there. Um, and there's just been so many twists and turns and stories within stories. It's been just a really fascinating sort of, yeah, ten years it took to, to bring it all together. I think I, I, that's what I find fascinating about this story is a lot of people may think, obviously she was born in Queensland, in Murrumbra, uh, but the idea, of, uh, the idea of the story of Mary Poppins came from here in Barrel. Yeah, look, I think it was an amalgam of different things that had happened in her life to that point. Um, but whole characters were taken in her stories. Whole characters were taken from Barrow without even changing the name. So that's a pretty good indication that, you know, Barrow was quite central to it. And certainly um, in Maryborough, even though it's depicted in the movie um, as, as being quite important, the fact is that she left Maryborough by the age of two or three. You know, nobody remembers a lot about being two or three. Mm. Um, uh, certainly her memories would have formed more sharply with her experiences later and the, and the death of her father. Um, but, you know, when she came here, the whole family was in a period of grief. And that would have been a period creatively, how to assimilate that, how to, you know, deal with, with, with that trauma. Um, and that's the way she dealt with it. She's dealt with it. She dealt with it the way humans... I mean, storytelling is the way humans for millennia have, have explained the unknown and the fearful and, and the like. And she did exactly that when she told that story of the magical white horse to her sisters. When they thought, or she thought, maybe the sisters didn't really know, they were too young, but she thought her mother was not going to come back, at least they're not alive. I, uh, when you mentioned before about uh, characters, sorry, real people from Barrel who are named in the book, I believe there's something like a butcher or something? Well, yeah, there's, um, look, the main one's the sweet shop. Owner. There was actually, uh, I remember talking to Ted, old Ted Springett, so Springett's Arcade in Sydney, um, before he passed away, and uh, he remembers the sweet shop that she referred to, and there were actually two gigantic daughters, just like is depicted in the, in the book and the movie. Um, there were two gigantic daughters who were part of that sort of op business operation. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, various other characters as well, again, taken without even changing names. So, um, yeah, so that, that was a pretty good indicator. The layout of the town, the vibe of the town and that, I think she probably took some elements from, um, she lived in Ashfield later, there's probably some elements from there because that was also near a park and, you know, mm. that was a good argument too. Uh, but, um, you know, yeah, look, there's, there's probably, uh, certainly her, her Aunt Ellie was probably the archetypal figure on which Mary Poppins was based. Right. And she had this habit even while they were living here in Barrel, of travelling down from Sydney and, 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 like, she would sort things out, you know. She was the boss, she was the matriarch, and she came in and took charge and, you know, she was living here, uh, the family were living here, basically uh, Aunt Ellie paid the rent in the house for them while they were living here. So, you know, she, she was sort of, uh, had that role of protector and, you know, guardian, I suppose. And so Mary Poppins has aspects of that, particularly the, the blow-in, blow-out sort of... Mm. Um, idea and, and you know the, the the idea of coming in on the on on the, on the east wing and out on the west wing and yes. all that sort of thing because of uh you're referring a lot to obviously the movie saving mr banks 
Uh, well, the, the movie, that particular movie, uh, oh, look, it's great that any attention's paid to Mary Poppins. It was, it was a little bit of a shame, at least from Barrel's point of view, that the ending was, um, I guess, creatively adapted because it, it doesn't correspond to what really uh, historically uh, was more accurate. And what was historically more accurate is that, whereas at, at the end of Saving Mr Banks, they depict the, 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 the character going and saving a mother riding a white horse. In fact, that was a creative adaptation based on, you know, what actually happened here in Barrel. But I can understand from a, a movie point of view, from a plotting point of view, you don't have a whole change in mm. town and, you know, stretch it out by years, you know, it would not make sense. Mm. So, you know, they've just had to take some creative decisions around that. But in fact, those that key time um, connected with the white horse, the, the creation of the character all happened in that in that sort of 10 years mm. that she was growing up here as a teenager herself in Barrel. Because mm. the uh, the musical, which is now playing it's in Sydney and will be touring around Australia, is based not only on the stories from P.L. Travis of the Mary Poppins stories, but also of the movie that starred um, Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, undoubtedly, I think when you look at the, the history of the you know, the, the, the creative property that, that is Mary Poppins, you can see that um, even though she did not like, apparently, the Disney treatment, uh, in fact, it was needed because the books by then had started to wane in popularity. Um, Disney just recharged it and gave it a whole new creative force with that movie. I mean, I, I remember seeing that movie myself. It's probably the first movie, maybe the second movie I saw as a, as a youngster. I think I saw Snow White before that. But I can remember, I think we went to Bathurst, you know, we drove to see that movie and, um, and you know, it had a huge impact, um, children everywhere uh, and adults. So I think that that gave it a whole new force. And then when Cameron McIntosh did the hard work to negotiate with P.L. Travers, all credit to him because she was a very difficult lady to deal with apparently, but he, he had obviously had the... The, the people smarts to be able to do it and, and create a relationship with her and gain a trust and uh, and then he, you know, they produced this marvellous stage show which is, yeah, as you say, it's got elements of both which I, I gather she wasn't happy about because she, you know, had this constant dislike for the movie but the fact is that the character of Mary Poppins is so open to, I guess, input from others uh, and, and it lends itself to this beautiful creative sort of continuum and I think that that's um, that's a good thing because it, it, it gives it allows different generations to refresh this archetypal character you know um, for some reason P.L. Travers she, she just managed to, to get this archetype that has appeal the mother figure the you know that all these aspects um, come together and the, with the magic and I think that's um, you know, that's why it's so popular around the world. I find it interesting that one of the songs is Jolly Holiday and the actual street name of the house that she lived in, Barrel, is Holly Street. Yeah, well, that's more based on the, on the plant, of course. Um, so all the plants around this part of Barrel have, have got you know, jasmine or, you know, they're, they're, they tend to be named after, after plants or streets, uh, just in this old part of Barrel. And, um, and so, yeah, Holly is, is, is the... Uh, is the is the name up on, on that street and and uh, there were only about apparently half a dozen streets or so uh, half a dozen houses in this in that street at the time 
And ironically, um, you know, she's based right here next to the Bradman Oval. At the time, um, one of those houses was occupied by young Don Bradman. So he was the same age as her younger sister. He moved here about the age of five, I think, from memory. And um, they must have known each other. Like, you don't live as kids in a street for 10 years, um, or the best part of 10 years, uh, particularly when you've got siblings the same age and not know each other, you know? So, so these two amazing characters out of Australia, you know, possibly the greatest sporting figure worldwide. I mean, on, the, on his statistics, he certainly is. Better than Babe Ruth, better than anybody. Um, better than Michael Jackson, you know? Like he, he's just uh, a complete outlier, Don Bradman. And here he is living in the same street and, uh, and, and he's got, um, you know, there's this fantastic, well, probably the greatest fictional creation that's ever come out of Australia. Uh, even more so than Crocodile Dundee, um, is Mary Poppins. I haven't read any of the books. There's a whole lot of series. Happened there to be any cricket in the stories? No, no. I don't recall any. But, um, but, but yeah, there might be some interesting interpretations on that. But, um, yeah, I don't think cricket comes into it. Various other things do, but, but from memory, not cricket. Uh, but the idea of a, uh, the park is one in particular. And, and, and to be fair, um, Don Bradman's cricketing prowess came a bit later because, uh, uh, like, he was only five when he worked. Now, now he would have been starting his cricket journey. Um, but, uh, you know, she probably... She was at boarding school at the time when she was living here as well. So, you know, but she spent, you know, uh, time up in Sydney as, also. In Ashfield, yeah. yeah. Now, there is another statue in Ashfield. So which came first? Yeah, so she lived in Ashfield later. She actually went to school at Normanhurst. Um, but, uh, well, the Normanhurst School. Uh, but the the Ashfield, after the family left here, they, they moved up to Sydney to, and lived in Ashfield. Um, but she was a young woman by then. She was working. Um, she left here about the age of 17 and, and went basically, you know, she was in a typing pool to begin with but then later she she very quickly got into to writing and journalism and, and and became an actress so you know and Valerie Lawson um you know records that whole period of her life it's a bit you know she was obviously yeah struggling a bit to find her place and she was a, a bit of a, a feminist I guess you'd say so she you know she she wrote a column um uh for I think it was the Sydney Morning Herald or the Bulletin um, sorry, I can't quite remember, but but yeah, she wrote um, a, a feminist-style column, a sassy young woman sort of take on the world, um, and and so yeah, she she was she was quite a you know an interesting lady. I've got to say, you know, she 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 wasn't the easiest. She, I think she could be very prickly, and particularly as she got older, a bit crotchety. You know, she was. She, but I think a lot of that was I I think was a little bit affected. I think it was part of her persona that that she she sort of had to maybe distance people a bit you know I, I don't think she particularly didn't she wasn't forthcoming about her Australian background and maybe you know trying to be an author in England when women authors it was hard at the best of times um, you know hence probably the initials in the name P.L. Travers you know a lot of authors women authors took initials and, and you know I guess tried to pass themselves off as possibly male um, to the public and so, you know, she, she, she was not particularly forthcoming about her background. I don't, know, I don't think she was ashamed of it necessarily, uh, but it just wouldn't have made commercial sense at one level to, 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 to put herself in that position. Um, and a lot of explaining to do maybe, I don't know. And also, it was a painful past she had. Um, you know, this is what Valerie Lawson depicts really, really well. Um, you know, it was, it was, 
it was a trauma, traumatized childhood in many ways and um, and so for her to revisit it probably through her fiction was the only way she could do it and and you know the underlying theme of a lot of the Mary Poppins stories or the story is this idea of a family being fixed a broken family being fixed and um, and, and you know in many ways her family was broken and continued to be broken it's absolutely fascinating and obviously behind your shoulder we have the glorious statue that you were part of to make this happen. Can you tell me more? Yeah, look, um, we, it was actually my daughter's suggestion, Melissa, um, she was only, uh, she would have been 12 at the time. So we'd, I'd, I'd been on a church, this Churchill Fellowship and she came back and she sort of made a few of these points and then it was one holiday as the council were having a, a competition to actually redesign Corbett Plaza, it was a youth competition and I said to Melissa, why don't you go in this and just before that, a month or two, she'd helped me with the book festival we ran, um, the Australian Festival of the Book, and so it's 2004 and she and her friends had done chalk art a la Mary Poppins or Bert, you know, the chimney sweep in Barrel as part of that festival. So. Um, to overcome her boredom, in part, um, she created this concept to, to commemorate Mary Poppins, and she entered that. And her and her friends, so she she managed to get a couple of friends to come with her in it, in it and she, her and her friends came second in it. Um, but the, the the idea didn't go away. The local chamber of commerce uh, wanted to hear more about it, and so we went along there and they did their presentation. And um, various people from the Chamber of Commerce, um, particularly Terry Oaks Ash and Tony Springett uh, and others, they said, this is great, you know, you've got to take this further. So we got encouraged. Um, but yeah, it was really Melissa and I then beginning the research process and that got me more interested because I realised, wow, there's actually some really real significance here. You know, this is not just, you know, authors stay in plenty of places, but this actually was the location for some really significant things that brought about the character in, in the mind. So the, when that came together, um, the idea that Melissa had originally for a statue, we found this location and um, it was more appropriate. I mean, because essentially with this statue, we've brought together, we've brought back together Don Bradman. The statue was already here of Don Bradman. And now we've got Mary Poppins and ironically, um, the same sculptor, Tanya Bartlett, did both, which was a, a massive coincidence because when we set up the panel to select the sculptor, it was a blind selection. So the, 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 I, I had arms length, I mean, I did the administration for it, but the, the people involved, the person who chaired it, Michael Ball, he's passed away now, but he was, he was head of the chairman of the Bradman Museum, or Bradman Foundation at the time. And Peter Seaton, who was a local member, um, local state member, uh, there was a, a local artist, there were, and Melissa was on the, on the panel, but, but they were kept, they didn't know who the sculptor was. So they, uh, they unanimously selected out of the 10 submissions, uh, Tanya Bartlett. And here she was being invited to, to add to uh, the statue she'd already done with Don Bradman. So we've reunited them in bronze 100 years later. <laughs> after, after they'd both been in Holly Street. Yeah, it was over 100 years later. Yeah, it was, when we put up the statue, it was, it was pretty much exactly 100 years since, wow. since the, the events. So tell me more, she looks life-size. She is life-size, or what you would call life-size. I mean, she's slightly smaller than maybe um, an average woman, but, but um, you know, back, back in those days, she probably was life-size. Uh, um, the books came with drawings. Is it based on that or something completely different? Uh, 
Um, it's based on the, the, the look. The basis for it is interesting. Uh, probably the one of my most satisfying aspects to it all, because when we were doing the research, we found that there was a um, there were sketches there that were done for a proposed statue in New York, and P.L. Travers herself had proposed the statue, um, and there'd been a great excitement amongst the administration in in um, the parks. And commission in New York to, oh yes we'll do this, um, and they actually started raising money for it. Um, now P.L. Travers had asked a sculptor, unfortunately um, I think Valerie Lawson's book has identified as a different person, our research showed it to be a guy called Sean Crampton and, uh, and we actually tried to track him down, he passed away, but I spoke to his widow in England and she remembered everything, she remembered the whole thing because they knew P.L. Travers. And, um, and in fact, it turned out that Sean Crampton was a bit upset that she'd used these very rough sketches to advance the idea because he wasn't, you know, they were just really rough. So she, he was a bit sort of um, not happy about that. But anyway, it being what it is, it had happened and they actually got published in the New York Times. So we found all this and I thought, well, this is a statue that never went ahead in New York. Um, so why don't we make it the basis for ours? So I contacted the widow, she agreed. Um, to, to that, you know, that, 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 that yes, that would be lovely, and um, we then put that as part of this, you know, submission process. So the sculptors use that as the creative source for, for, for their proposal. And um, Tanya, you know, succeeded in that. And what we have here is a very close actual rendition um, or interpretation of that sketch. Um, it's, it's it's quite close, really. And um, it was lovely because even though the Sean Crampton's widow couldn't come out, his daughter could. She, he was, she was living in New Zealand at the time and her daughter came with her and they came here for the unveiling and it was really, really quite beautiful. But this is the statue that New York could have and should have built but never did and Farrell's got it. Um, but we do have copies made so if New York ever wanted to do a statue, we, we, have, uh, uh, we have been selling this. I'm the president of the Southern Highland Youth Arts Council who auspiced this statue project and we actually do sell copies of it and there are various ones around Australia. Really? Yeah, yeah and the money goes towards our Southern Highland Youth Arts Council and we create musicals for young people and the like so um, if there's, we've, we've had some wealthy philanthropists who have purchased wow. um, copies of the statue and put it in there. Really? Purposes, yeah. Because yeah. I knew there was one in Trafalgar Square, and I said there was one earlier in uh, Ashfield. Not, not of your not, statue. Not, not completely statue. different. Yeah. Others have. And Ashfield is different. Yeah, Ashfield's different again. Yeah. That, that predated our statue. We mm. actually went and visited the the young girl and her mother as part of our research, and it was a very inspiring story in its own right. Um, uh, Gracie Drew, I think her name was, mm -hmm. and she was um, really lovely young girl, and she she done a tremendous thing to, to build that, that small statue there. Um, they didn't have much of a budget. Um, I think she'd even sold the bike or something to, to, to help pay for it, you know, like it was really, it was really inspiring in its own way. And so we, um, we obviously ended up doing things on a slightly different scale here. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, we, we, and we, we had to, we had to get the town to embrace it as well, because up to that point, there was this prevailing view that, oh, well, that's just a little side story. Um, they didn't really appreciate the significance of it um, and so you know we held a massive event here we actually broke two Guinness World Records when we had our um, umbrella mosaic um, day which brought 2,150 people together here on Bradman Oval a day not unlike today actually it was a beautiful day and uh, we had them holding um, umbrellas 
in, in a mosaic of Mary Poppins, which wasn't big enough to be seen from space, but it was, it was, it was quite big. Uh, we got some lovely aerial photographs from that, and so we, we achieved that record, and then immediately afterwards we broke the record for the largest umbrella dance. So we, they all danced the hokey pokey on Bradman Oval with umbrellas. And so, yeah, two world records, and, and that started to put us into the, you know, we were in Sydney papers, and in fact that footage of the of the world record went around the world. I mean, I, I've had photos sent to me from, from you know, India and all sorts of places, and that footage, the vision of it also, you know, went, went a long way. So um, the New York Times, you know, talked about it in their, in their story. So, yeah. Because there's something really special about this statue. She moves. Yeah, look, that was when we were... Uh, we had to raise over $100,000 for the statue. Um, so we, we did a lot of community fundraising, but we also sold miniature statues, um, uh, maquettes, they're, they're called, um, to help raise money. But we also wanted to get, I guess, some official endorsement. So I applied for a tourism grant from the federal government. And when I was putting that together, I thought, well, you know, like, it's just another statue. Like, how, how can we make it different? And um, I think it was probably a little bit of subconscious inspiration, but in one of the Mary Poppins stories, uh, in Mary Poppins in the Park, there's a story of a statue called Nellius, who ends up moving, and it causes a great consternation. Um, and the mayor comes in, you know, like, this statue, it's gone, it's moved from the park, it's, it's, it's got up and walked away. <laughs> and they actually use that statue sequence in the musical, in, in, in um, the Cameron Macintosh musical, which is lovely. Uh, so I thought, well, you know, a moving statue, now there's an idea. And so what our statue does is it can swivel and it swivels around on the equinox. We turn it, ever since it's been installed, it's turned around on the equinox. Um, so that's in March and September. And that's when day equals night. And it's the traditional change of season. You know, you're going into winter or, or, or summer. And that was also, it ties in with the idea of Mary Poppins flying in on the east wind and out on the west wind for essentially the summer. The stories are set in summer, you know, uh, and then she seems to disappear in the winter. So it picked up on that thing. It was like a, I guess, yeah, a seasonal celebration uh, or marking of, of the change of, of time. So um, we've done that now. In the first five years, we actually did it secretly. We, we, we actually had... Um, a secret guild of guys that would come down here and we would manhandle the statue in a particular way. Uh, would have, we nearly got caught a few times, but, but we would turn it around in the dark and then, you know, there was this mystery created around it all and the kids came up with great stories around the magic that might be involved. Uh, but then after five years, we all got a bit weary of it, I think. But, but no, we decided, OK, it's time to make it public and we moved the statue location a bit, created this lovely position for it. We actually had the federal government money then um, from the grant application, which we actually, you know, said we would create a moving statue and a, a, a detailed it all in there, what we would do. So we, we actually then proceeded to, to build a new, um, new plinth and swivel. And now we have a ceremony twice a year. Um, it, we try and connect it to Bar Barrel's Tulip Time. So whoever the Tulip Time sponsor is that year, we invite them to turn the statue in May. So they're official person, you know. And then in September, when we have the other one, that corresponds with tulip time, as it turns out. And we then have, uh, we've only been able to do it once since because of COVID, but we have an umbrella lantern parade. And so we've done it once, and it was just the most beautiful day. People dress up, they, they um, 
cover themselves in LED lights and, and decorate themselves and their umbrellas and, and then we paraded with these beautifully illuminated umbrellas into Corbett Gardens where the main tulip time promotion happens and there's just wonderful footage um, uh, out there on Facebook um, uh, on our Facebook page of, of you know that particular day so we're really looking forward to doing that again uh, we'd like to make that an annual thing that people can come to um, and celebrate the equinox and celebrate again the connection with the town has with the, the character of Mary Poppins. And I believe there's something very special carved into the statue as well. Oh well yeah look I showed you a little earlier um, there were a few little Easter eggs I guess you'd call them with the statue. Um, we did have a competition for young people to help design a motif that connected the statue with Barrel and um, underneath uh, well, no, actually, I'll let people I'll let people find it themselves. <laughs> but there's a little motif there with the with the um, with the initials of the boy uh, who um, who won the competition with his little design, um, and that's secreted away on the statue. And if people come and visit it, they can ferret about and find it. Most people will start looking up address. I ask you not to do that. I'll tell you now, it's not up address because if you're caught here looking up address, people are going to start, you know. Because you can see the petticoats. <laughs> yeah, you can see the petticoats. That's all you can see, by the way, too. Yeah. Well, as I was saying to you before, with um, uh, Julie Andrews' husband was the set designer in costume, and part of the costume design, he actually made Mary Poppins have colourful petticoats. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I love that. And actually, what I'm also looking at is uh, one thing, I believe what happened was... I'm see. I'm looking at the statue, and I'm looking at the statue's nose, and I believe that was a very famous... Uh, story because Julie Andrews had just had a baby and they they were waiting for her to come back and obviously play the role and P.L. Travers gave her a phone call and she said well Julie you have the nose for it. You have the nose for it yes. So it's a very sweet nose on that Yeah on well that, that was part of you know because when, when um, so Mary Shepard who did the uh, illustrations um, she was actually the daughter of E. H. Shepard who did uh, Winnie the Pooh and um and she had been sort of found, I guess, I think P.L. Travers actually sort of more or less found her and, uh, as an illustrator. And so she came up with this. And, and look, Mary Poppins had this aspect, certainly in the books, that the way P.L. Travers had depicted her was that she was sort of plain, but she was very, um, she had a pretty high opinion of how she looked. So, if anything, perhaps Julie Andrews was too beautiful, a lot of people said, for the role. You know, she wasn't plain enough. Um, uh, so there was that little idiosyncrasy about the character, that, that she was very uh, proud of her appearance and very, very, you know, but, but in fact, in reality, she was meant to be quite plain. So I'm not sure how that was sort of really carried off by Julie Andrews, but, but yeah, I, I, look, who, who, can, who can fault Julie Andrews for that performance? And I, st I see here the parrot umbrella and the bag. Yeah, so look, they're, they're two uh, sort of iconic attributes of, of the Mary Poppins character. Um, the parrot-headed umbrella is interesting. Like, they've, they've, there was apparently, uh, when she was younger, before she moved to Barrel, there was a, it's, it's said that there was a maid who w worked for them, the family at the time, who owned a parrot-headed umbrella. So, it's, you know, it'd be quite possible that a young girl would be fascinated by something like that. Um, and keep that as a as a motif going forward. Um, so, you know, it was suggested maybe Aunt Ellie had one, but I don't know about that. I think she was a fairly proper lady. I don't know, she would have indulged in sort of, you know, things like that, but who knows? Yeah, yeah, that's another one of those little mysteries, but 
it, it seems like it's it's something from her past that she's like many of the things here in Barrow and no doubt elsewhere that she's brought forward. So in September when we have our ceremony for the uh, equinox um, what we do now we have we have the tulip time happening but we have the young people in year six from the local schools who come and turn the statue because the logic is that they're about to experience their own change of season. They're going from primary school to high school in a, probably one of the biggest changes in their lives to that point. And so we like that particular group each year to, to be sort of honoured, if you like, with or given the opportunity to come along and celebrate their connection with their town, but also um, with the idea that their life's about to change in a dramatic way. And, um, and that's worked really well because we get really enthusiastic, you know, year six kids who come along and, and, and their younger siblings are all going, oh, we can do that, you know, as well, you know, when we get to, to that age. So, yeah, it's a nice sort of uh, way of connecting again with the town. Mm. Well, it gives us a whole fresh, gives us a whole fresh sort of group each year as well, you know. So um, those year six kids, they realise, well, this is my year to do it. I better turn up. Because know? it is beloved. As we were standing here, we had tourists turning up that had seen the musical, came down and were all over this statue. It must make you really proud to know that people are coming down just like ourselves to see what you created. Oh, look, it's, look I, I mean, nothing to do with me so much or my daughter. I, I, look, I've got to say that in a way, what I was able to do with Melissa in this it's an interesting parallel because, you know, here was this girl who deeply loved her father, who lost him at a very young age, you know, eight years old or thereabouts, um, and had that trauma for the rest of her life, you know, arguably the searching for Mr Banks' movie, you know, this theme of that she was constantly looking for a father figure again in her life. So, you know, here we are 100 years later and there's this parallel of a father and daughter being able to do something like this that's bonded us together because you know this statue represents for us a, a lot of things you know we had a little pet dog at the time called Miletus and and he was a he was a little Maltese terrier and he got pretty old by then and just after we put the statue in it was time for him to go so we brought him down here and he came around I think he cocked his leg on you know that the statue was in a different spot then but you know like I mean it was just it was just a, a thing for her for you know for us as a family it was you know because it's been a journey for for her and my wife Sue and you know like it's 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 consumed us a little bit I've got to say for for a time but in a nice way and and I think yeah pretty stark parallel to um, or contrast, you know, to, to, to what the author experienced 100 years before. Um, that that father-daughter relationship, like mother-daughter relationship, mother-child, mother father-child, you know, like it, it, it's elemental, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It is something 100 years later and a father and daughter coming together to create and immortalise what Peels Travers actually created herself. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and really be playing out similar themes in a way, you know, like uh, of, of, um, of uh, the importance of family, which was what, as I said, you know, the, the, the underlying theme is, is, is in Mary Poppins is broken families and, and, and how they can be fixed. And, and um, you know, it's the challenge. I mean, you can argue, you know, whether the solutions that Peels Travers suggested or, the, you know, the, the themes are... But the, 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 the overall sort of confrontation and, and, and challenges of, of that are, you know, they, they're going to be around forever, those, mm. those same themes. Do you think she'd be happy with this and the musical and her being immortalised, her creation? 
Oh, gee, that would be really hard to say. Look, you know, she was a very, she had very, very opinionated person. She made herself clear. I think, personally, that I think she'd be pretty happy with what's happened here. I think um, the way she spoke about Barrel to her friend Patricia Felton and the instant way that she connected, um, you know, now, we haven't really covered that, I don't think. Um, so when we were researching this story, a really key thing happened. There was a lady called Patricia Felton who'd been to Barrel previously, um, probably about five or six years before, and she talked about um, Mary, Pop Mary Poppins and Peel Travers and the connection. It turned out that Peel Travers had known Patricia Felton for 30 years or so. She was a younger friend, and Patricia had um, been a companion, a travelling companion and, and friend for many years. But her, her sister had moved to Australia and she said to P.L. Travers one day, look, I'm going away, I won't see you for a while, I'm going to Australia, so, you know, if I'm not around, that's why. And P.L. Travers said to her, where in Australia are you going? And she said, oh, you won't have heard of it, it's not Melbourne, it's not Sydney, um, it's a place called Barrel. And straight away, P.L. Tra Travers shot back at her, the jib. And Patricia didn't know what she was talking about. The jib is what locals call Mount Gibraltar, which is the dominant landform in this area and can be seen, you know, from, from the home up there in Holly Street. And then it all poured forth. Up until that point, Patricia Felton knew nothing about Peel Travers's background as, as being born in Australia and the, all of what happened. Uh, and it all came out. And so when she came here to Australia to visit her sister, she was desperately trying to sort of explain to people, look, you've got this legacy you know this literary connection that is just amazing i don't know that people were dismissive of it they weren't but you know it didn't get a lot of traction so as it turned out at the time when melissa and her friends were proposing this um uh, commemoration with a statue and and, and the like um Peel, uh, patricia felton visited again and we met her formed a great friendship and she was very supportive. She was, she was a bit unsure. I mean, we make the claim that Barrel is the birthplace of Mary Poppins. We mean the character, not the author. I mean, Peel Travers or Helen Lyndon Goff was born in Maryborough in 1899, undisputed. But the character, the fictional character of Mary Poppins, the evidence is overwhelming. This was her birthplace. So that has been the contention around you know, putting a lot of effort into into all of this uh, project. And so Patricia Felton, um, um, you know, had a lot of other information to give us and some sort of memorabilia and other things. But she also helped out Maryborough too. She, she connected with them earlier on her earlier visit. And so she was um, uh, partly back in Australia to go and, go and visit them. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's a very important um, sort of part of the story was that we had the input and support of, of someone who knew, knew P.L. Travis personally. We have a visitor. <laughs> Hello. Sorry. No, not at all. <laughs> it's all part, it. of, all, part of the, all part of the attraction. <laughs> Would you like to get your photograph taken or something? So we're about to... What's the significance of Mary Poppins and Barrel? Are you the expert? <laughs> Hi. So just, you just watched the very original film. Oh, the Julie Andrews one? And yeah. just, it was amazing just how it was completely mesmerised because they don't make films with that magic
have seen the movie Ash Kane on one wind and out on another. The stories are all set in summer in, in the original story. So they, um, yeah, the, 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 the idea of um, the change of seasons are a big, big aspect to it all. We certainly have that here in Barrow. We have change of seasons. Does it? Oh my god, she's spinning. Here we go. She's spinning. I can't tell you what this feels like to actually watch this. I feel like there should be an orchestra playing or something. Yeah. Uh, oh my god. Oh my god. She's spinning. Mary Poppins is literally turning. That's about where she went up on the next change. Wow. That's unbelievable. When it comes to spring and the equinox, it is the most magnificent thing I have ever seen. I feel like we need an orchestra. Someone needs to sing. Oh my goodness. You have to be here for the next event in spring and March. You cannot miss September and March. Oh my god, you have to see this. And this is it. Now we are going to P.L. Travis's original home in Barrel. Okay, let's get in the car. Okay, here we go. We're gonna go and see. Weatherborn? It's not. It's it's got shut. It's oh my goodness! It's so beautiful that this was her house and feed the birds is a song from the movie and it's actually got it's about a, a meter or two meters high. This 
quite big bird house, bird feeder, bird house. And the house is beautiful. The house is caramel in colour and it's got these dark grey shutters and this beautiful white or caramel picket fence with this with this iron fencing of the gate. The gate looks original as well and the filigree of it just kind of looks like little love hearts. It's it's absolutely beautiful. It's a, got corrugated iron roof and a wisteria or some kind of um, bougainvillea maybe, branches on the front of the house where the awning is. It's winter, so that doesn't have any leaves, but it must just look spectacular as an entrance as you walk through the house. The windows are cute. Oh my goodness, I... What a beautiful, beautiful house. And it's not covered by any... I can't see any, any sign to say what a history or a landmark that this house is. And I hope it will be preserved. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm here. This is it. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of when Helen Lyndon Goff lived with her mother and her two young sisters. And Helen told the story of the white horse, which of course was the idea of Mary Poppins coming in and saving the day. It's really heartwarming and I'm feeling really emotional. I'm here. Wow. Um, yeah, so this is uh, this is taken, we think, in Holly Street um, in 1915. Just trying to work out which end of Holly Street it is but it would have been during a, the, the period of, um, of some flooding. But this is not the storm or the flood that um, she writes about because that, that happened earlier. As near as we can work out, we actually got the weather records. I, I got the weather records, daily weather records for, for Barrel during that era. And luckily, um, it, was the, um, it was a period when there was no rain for a, quite a while, but there was a big storm uh, around the 21st of... July, I think it was from memory, um, in 1910, and we think that is, if you like, the the birth date of Mary Poppins because that was when the White Horse story would have been told uh, when that storm hit in in 1910. So this photograph here is is some five years later, but the, the period of flooding, this this area of Barrow um, flooded fairly fairly frequently until quite recently actually. Um, even in my time living here, that this area was prone to flooding, but they've done work since then. It's made that less likely now. So that's uh, yeah, that's that's P.L. Travers there, or Helen Lyndon Goff, and her her sisters Moya and Biddy, um, um, which is here in this book, Out of the Sky She Came, the life of P.L. Travers, uh, which Valerie Lawson uh, brought out in 1999, a hundred years after the birth of P.L. Travers. And you think that could be Don Bradman's house? <laughs> well, it's nice to think so. I mean, it could be down that end of Holly Street. He'd moved here in 1905, I think. That would be 10 years old. I mean, that could be a 10-year-old boy there standing on the corner. So how coincidental would that be if that was Don Bradman standing there? And that's her house. And here we are.
here we are. Yeah, so the house is still very much um, was a, a cover that um, Snapshot Magazine did at the time when we were promoting the uh, Guinness World Record attempt. So. Uh, and you won two. Two Guinness World Records. Two yeah. Guinness World Records. The, the largest umbrella mosaic with 2,115 people and the uh, largest umbrella dance. So we did two Guinness World Records on one day. I don't think many people can say that, can they? No. Not on one day. Not on one day. Yeah. So we, we, it was a great community effort. Really inspirational to see so many people come out and give up their Saturday afternoon. And that evening we had a, we had a screening, an outdoor screening on Bradman Oval of the Mary Poppins movie. Yeah. And so many kids saw that on the big screen. And uh, we had a fireworks display afterwards. It was just the most magical, magical day. People came, came, out, came up to me years later. They'd stop me in the supermarket and you know, tell me what a great time they had. So it was, it was, it was, it was fun. So uh, if the statue is 10 years old, do you think you'll mark it with another big event? I don't want to promise anything because I just don't know. With the, with the way we're at the moment, we seem to be going from one disaster to another. <laughs> um, we had some plans to try and commemorate the Guinness World Record attempt, but that, you know, that fell right within the COVID period. So um, unfortunately, I think those records have moved on now. I think most of them have been broken in China with so many people we'd never We'd never have a chance at them. As uh, uh, my understanding is now, they've uh, they've moved on to much much bigger numbers. So we got it at just the right time. Um, but you know, if this was this college was available to budding writers, children's authors, mm. as a fellowship. You know, they have the Varuna Fellowship. Well, one for children's authors, I think, would be very appropriate. People, you know, they could come here, live in Barrow for six months, write their book. You know, what a marvellous thing that would be for a philanthropist or organisation to support something like that. It would preserve the house. It could be maybe opened up to the public on, you know, Sunday afternoon or something or Saturday afternoon, you know, just that would be part of the, what the writer would give back to the place to be here to, to allow people to come in and look around. Um, but as well as that, they could spend um, six months on a fellowship, you know, to, to live rent-free and maybe with a little stipend, you know. Uh, things like that happen around the world in various famous authors' houses, and I think that would be really appropriate here. It's not really appropriate for it to be a museum as such because it's in a residential area, but um, maybe to have bookings, you know, for by appointment for visits, um, something like that could work. And, you know, how special to think that, you know, the, possibly the one of the greatest children's book characters ever created you know the, the, the house that was created on is still standing here you know any other country this would be <laughs> this would be vitally important so when we do the guinness world record in 2011 for the largest umbrella mosaic and the, the largest umbrella dance that coincided with the opening of the uh, stage show, the Cameron McIntosh Disney stage show in Sydney. And out of here at the time was Patricia Felton, but also um, the three children of P.L. Travers, um, uh, 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 sorry, of her son, so her grandchildren. Um, so she had an adopted son who in turn had children and his three children came out for the premiere of the show in Sydney. And they came to our Guinness World Record event, so they were part of it. So her grandchildren were part of that event 
and they came up here to this house and were shown through it. And the really spooky thing was we were able to show them the actual fireplace where the, the white horse story was told and the creation of the Mary Poppins character. So how special was that? Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. And Peel Chambers, Helen Lindenbrock described the, the noise of the storm as like, you know, horses on the, leaves on the roof and in fact when we did the research we found that in barrel at that time when the news reports they had um, uh, they reported that one of the shows there was a show being done at Mittagong that had to stop performance because the storm was that big so it was a massive massive storm wow talk about spooky I can't believe it's the 30th of July so that's 112 years plus a week since P.L. Travis was here in this house and told the story of the white horse. Paul McShane it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for your time thank you and Melissa and your wife Sue for putting in all this hard work campaigning to have this incredible statue made and your generosity of showing me around Barrel. And let me tell you, if you love Mary Poppins, of course go and see the musical, which is travelling around Australia. And you can also watch Mary Poppins in London. But you have to come down to Barrel. And of course look out for the summer and the spring equinox, which is March and September, where Mary gets turned. And yes, Let's see who will turn her and come down and share in the festivities. Paul McShane, again, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Elizabeth. P.L. Travers, Helen Linden Goff, wherever you are, thank you so much for the gift that is Mary Poppins. This has been Let Me Entertain You, Inside the Minds of Musical Theatre. Thanks for listening. Please like, subscribe and tell your friends. But most importantly, go and see a show. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Nice to be in orbit.